Hello everyone. This is Onu Mayasaki, professor of international law at the University of Tokyo Graduate School for Law and Politics. This is the second lecture of my lecture series dealing with a trans-civilizational perspective on international law in the 21st century. International law, like any other law, is basically prescriptive norms of conduct. Whose conduct is international law is supposed to control? Well, international law is expected to control the conduct of states. Thus, international law and the power of the states are juxtaposed. The problem of compliance is one of the most popular subjects in international law. Law, on the other hand, must have legitimacy and effectiveness. Or, law must have both elements of justice and power. This statement is supported by almost universal and trans-historical experiences concerning the law in human societies. These statements, however, are a product of oversimplification and needs a number of qualifications. Justice or legitimacy itself is a certain kind of power. A prevalent perception of law versus power often overlooks this aspect of law. In the second lecture, I will try to elucidate this, these complex features on international law and power as much as possible. As I referred to in my first lecture, we live in a multipolar world. The power structures of the 21st century will become increasingly different from those of the 20th century. The predominant power the U.S. and Europe enjoyed in all areas will likely diminish in relative terms. On the other hand, China and India, candidates for new superpowers, had once enjoyed the status of empires or central powers with an egocentric universalism. Yet, they were both humiliated in the 19th and 20th century by imperialism. It is reasonable to assume that they will behave in a more aggressive and assertive manner and challenge the Western hegemony in most areas on a global scale. Seen from a more general perspective, it is likely that we will witness major tensions destabilizing the international order in the 21st century. First, tensions between the transnationalization of economics and information and the territorially constructed sovereign state system. Second, tensions between the global pursuit for human dignity and the sense of humiliation and victimization shared by a huge number of people in the non-Western world. And third, tensions between the increasing economic power held by Asian nations and the ideational intellectual power held by Western nations. 
With the change of agents of various types of power, who have different perceptions of the world and history, law accompanying power will also change. But how will the law and power change? And how should they change? This lecture seeks to examine the complex relations between law and power, taking into consideration the problem of international, transnational, and transcivilizational legitimacy in the global system. The task is so enormous that I can show you only a very simplified uh, picture. Still, I hope that my lectures will contribute to throwing light on some of the aspects that may not have been fully recognized or developed by other studies. First, the complexities of law and power in global society. The prevalent image of law and power, international law versus the power of states. International society is a society where humans are engaged in mutual and common affairs, mainly through the institution of sovereign states. International law is an essential means for the coexistence of sovereign states, the awful entities with effective means of violence, capable of killing thousands of people. It is also an essential means of administration and cooperation in international society. Everyday activities in our daily life are conducted as the realization of international law. International law administers trade, transportation, finance, dissemination of information, and the like on a global scale. International law is expected to control behaviors of states primarily as prescriptive norms of conduct, prescribing that states take or refrain from certain specific acts. However, these states are sovereign states with the supreme power of sovereignty. Moreover, in the actual world, these states include great powers that can violate international legal norms with little fear of being sanctioned for their illegal behaviors. They also include states with little incentive to abide by international law, yet with a substantive power to resist sanctions. It is therefore natural that the first question is, which is often asked is, can international law control or regulate the power of states? International law as restraining the power of states is its most prevalent image or perception. We have a large number of writings on this subject. I myself dealt with it in an article published in the European Journal of International Law in 2003. Here, I invite your attention to a few points. First, it is difficult to demonstrate empirically that the state behaves in accordance with international law because international law prescribes that it do so. Second, state organs, however, usually choose acts that coincide with international law. They do so unconsciously in many cases 
because for state organs to behave in accordance with law is normal. Like domestic law, international law is structured into our daily life. Third, if governments act contrary to a norm in international law, they will usually be criticized by and or receive negative reactions from a number of actors, foreign governments whose <coughs> interests are violated by the illegal act, international organizations whose mandate includes the protection of the norm in question, national courts of the state whose mandate includes securing the legality of conduct of the state organs, opposition parties of the state, media institutions, NGOs, etc. State organs, being aware of disadvantages they would have to face, usually seek to avoid these disadvantages by trying to abide by international law. Fourth, state organs are likely to take an act contrary to international law, however, if they judge that the overall advantages of the act outweigh its disadvantages. I must also point out that the failure to restrain state behavior in the last case is not the failure of international law alone. The failure is a consequence of the malfunctioning of the entire system of the current global society. This includes a failure of diplomacy, the humiliating effects of the merciless global market economy, frustrations held by domestic constituencies regarding economic, financial, and trade policies, the legacy and the sense of victimization caused by past wars, massacres, etc. International law, together with prudent diplomacy, wise economic and financial policies taken by major powers and financial international <coughs> organizations, appropriate news reporting and criticisms by influential media institutions, and other relevant factors can exert some influence on the decision-making of governments. International law is a part of the existing international system. In international society, even the most powerful state cannot be a global empire literally dominating all over the world. This being the case, Great powers need law to legitimize their predominance. It would be profitable for those powers to articulate and camouflage their hegemony by such refined instruments as law. Every ruler in human society and history has used law as a tool of their rule and hegemony. Law, on the other hand, is more favorable than naked power to the ruled. Some of the current norms of international law have been made as a result of the supremacy of the majority of s smaller nations over the power of the major powers. The latter, however reluctantly, seek to comply with those norms because they know well that the image of legality on the part of the powerful is important in world and domestic politics. The power that creates, sustains, and realizes international law.
I am dealing with the power in the creation of international law. The idea of law and power that contrasts sharply with the idea that law controls power is the one that law is a handmaiden of power. This perception certainly reflects an important aspect of international law. The creation of bilateral treaties is a conspicuous example especially during the period when imperialism and colonialism were not questioned, there was virtually no mechanism to check the imposition of the arbitrary will of a powerful party on the other party. A number of so-called unequal treaties were concluded. More concrete examples can be seen in the bilateral investment treaties concluded between developed and developing countries. These bilateral investment treaties include provisions prescribing the following. First, prohibition of local requirements. Second, compensation by market price in case of expropriation. And third, referral to international arbitration in case of disputes between parties. These provisions basically reflect the demand of developed countries. The developing countries, which desperately needed capital, swallowed these provisions. Bilateral investment treaties have thus prevailed since the 1980s. In the case of multilateral treaties, the form of power can be more diverse. In addition to the power of individual states, the power of the majority plays an important role. Therefore, when states seek to create multilateral treaties in international conferences, the power of developed countries, expressed in terms of military, economic, as well as informational, diplomatic, and other soft powers, and the power of developing countries, expressed in the number of the vote, are juxtaposed. Also important in multilateral international lawmaking is the power of civil society. This includes not only the power of NGOs, but also the power of huge enterprises and media institutions. They are the major agents of transnational perspectives and can exert a certain power on the international law-creating process. The role of Western power in the creation of so-called customary international law has already been dealt with in the first lecture. Next, I will briefly deal with the problem of power that sustains and realizes international law. Law is generally perceived to be a coercive norm. People share the perception that law can and should be enforced by authoritative power against the will of law breakers. <clears throat> this feature differentiates law from other norms such as religious or ethical ones. This shared perception, together with other perceptions of law such as law as representing justice, supports the effectiveness of law. In the case of domestic law, this perception is institutionalized in the state enforcement mechanism of law. 
courts have compulsory jurisdiction. The judgment of the court can be enforced even when people seek to settle their conflicts by non-judicial means such as negotiations, they behave under the shadow of the court. A party whose factual evidence and legal claim is more solid can send a message to the other party to the effect that you had better give in to the condition I claim in this negotiation. Otherwise, I will sue you and you will lose the case in court. International law lacks such mechanisms. The ICJ does not have compulsory jurisdiction. It lacks an institutionalized mechanism to enforce its judgment. Intergovernmental negotiations are not usually conducted under the shadow of the court. We cannot assume the enforcement of international law by judicial mechanisms. We must identify the mechanisms through which international law is enforced other than the enforced mechanism of adjudicative norms. The collective security system in the field of the use of force may be characterized as an alternative to such an enforcement mechanism. However, there are difficulties in, character in characterizing it as such. Fundamentally, the collective security system covers only the field concerning international peace and security. It does not cover all areas of international law. Further, even in this limited field, the collective security system does not allow us to characterize it as an institutional mechanism for the enforcement of international law. Technically speaking, the collective security system does not necessarily respond to violations of international law. The Security Council is obligated to take measures on the basis of whether the state act breaches or threatens international peace and security. There are cases in which the Security Council does not determine a certain act of a state to be a threat to international peace and security, although this act constitutes a violation of international law. The UN collective security system is certainly an important mechanism for sustaining and realizing the international legal norm of the prohibition of the use of force. Most acts that are determined by the Security Council to be a threat or a breach of the peace constitute violations of international law on the prohibition of the use of force. The UN's collective security system is a valuable global institution that must be maintained, improved, and strengthened. Yet, this is not enough. The power and mechanisms which sustain and enforce international law must be found not only in the collective security system. They must all be found elsewhere. Some have regarded the power of the United States as an alternative to globally institutionalized mechanisms to sustain and enforce international law. 
a kind of self-righteous universalistic idealism deeply rooted in the people of the United States and the paramount power of the U.S. possessed in the latter half of the 20th century supported such a peculiar understanding of international law. The United States actually enacted a number of domestic laws which, according to their interpretation, implement and or supplement norms of international law. We can see many such examples in the field of trade, antitrust, environment, and human rights, among others. However, to characterize a unilateral interpretation and realization of international law as ultimately authoritative and legitimate would negate the very concept of international law. International law is a common code of conduct that all states share in international society. Any enforcement measures taken by a single state or a group of states can be characterized as a realization of international law only when such measures are endorsed by the overwhelming majority of states. If such measures are actually enforced without this endorsement, such enforcement, quote-unquote, action should be characterized as the use of naked power under the guise of law enforcement. Self-righteousness, not justice, is at work. A self-appointed agent of dédoublement fonctionnel, acting without global endorsement, cannot be characterized as a legitimate agent of this function. Some international lawyers have argued that the balance of power is a prerequisite for the proper functioning of international law. Oppenheim is one such international lawyer. It is often said that 19th century Europe, when the classic diplomacy under the balance of power was carried out, was a stable period of classical international law. A number of violations of international legal norms by the U.S., a contemporary version of the empire, also seem to demonstrate the need for the balance of power in order for international law to be realized in a legitimate manner. However, the balance of power is not enough for international law to be realized in a legitimate manner. Under the balance of power between the great powers in the 19th century Europe, the rights and interests of smaller nations were often violated for the sake of the common interest of these European great powers. A certain kind of balance of power existed between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold Period. Yet, Many, numbers of international, many members of international society virtually acquiesced in the violation of the rights and interests of smaller nations by the superpowers within their respective spheres of influence in order to avoid total war between them. The Soviet Union intervened by force in and suppressed the Hungarian Rising of 1956 it also intervened by force 
in the Prague Spring of 1968. The U.S. repeatedly intervened by force in Caribbean nations such as Nicaragua and Panama. There are many other examples of this kind. In this way, the international judiciary, <coughs> various reciprocal measures, the collective security system, and the balance of power alone cannot secure uh, the illegitimate realization of international law. Yet, our life goes on daily because states generally abide by international law and realize it in almost all cases. Violations of international law are certainly conspicuous, but they are exceptions rather than the rule. This general compliance with international law by states is not necessarily the result of the consideration by states of the possibility of countermeasures against their illegal acts taken by other states. Horizontal sanctions, countermeasures, reprisals, and other reciprocal measures are generally assumed as a major mechanism to enforce international law, but they constitute only a part of the entire mechanism that sustains and realizes international law. The fact that there exist a number of domestic actors, such as opposition parties, influential media, courts and NGOs, carefully watching the behavior of the government has an important meaning in securing the lawful behavior of the state. Also, ne negative reactions against an illegal act on the part of international organizations, third-party states, including powerful states, NGOs, and influential media do matter in securing the compliance of international law by the state. Further, a psychological framework unconsciously inviting lawful behavior is embedded in the minds of those who are in charge of decision-making involving international law. This fact has an important meaning, too. In order to fully understand these mechanisms working for the legitimate functioning of international law, we must study international law from the perspective of ideational power. The prevalent juxtaposition of law as a norm and power as a reality tends to invite people to question <coughs> the relevance of international law. A prevalent image shared by many international relations scholars and to a certain extent by ordinary citizens that international law is unrealistic or irrelevant in international society is due to several factors. <clears throat> First, during the interwar period, E.H. Carr severely criticized Hirsch Lauterbacht as utopian. This utopian Latterpacht has been vaguely seen as representative of international lawyers. Second, during the post-war period, such influential figures as Hans Morgenthau, George Cannon, and Kenneth Waltz were all critical of legalism in international affairs. Third, people generally pay attention only to conspicuous cases of the violations of international law. 
The violation of the principle of the prohibition of the use of force is a typical example. They are not aware that their life is possible due to this, their <coughs> constant work of international law. Like air, which is essential for human life but usually goes unnoticed, international law is not generally, is not generally noticed. Most people, even experts, regard international law only as a <coughs> regulatory norm whose function is to control the power of states. They ignore the fact that international law has many other functions. A brief response to these critical points is in order. First, Latapakt is not representative of international lawyers. His theory of settling all disputes through the international judiciary and arbitration was severely criticized not only by Carr, but by numerous other international lawyers as well. Criticizing Latapak's theory regarding international law only as adjudicative norms as unrealistic does not mean that international law or international lawyers in general are unrealistic. Second, the international system tends to reflect predominant ideas and institutions of the major powers in the system. Today's international system is a product of the expansion of European powers on a global scale during the modern period and the subsequent hegemony of the United States in the 20th century. Both West European nations and the United States have shared and maintained a highly legalistic culture. Legalism has been and still is predominant in European American society as well as in global society. To criticize the excessive legalistic approach once prevalent in U.S. diplomacy is one thing. To deny the raison d'etre and the reality of law in international society is another. Even if the former is correct, the latter is mistaken. Third, when we assess something, we must not assess it by observing merely conspicuous phenomena. As long as states act in conformity with international law, no problem relating to international law occurs. This is the normality of international law in that the content of international legal norms is realized on a daily basis. State agents generally act in accordance with international law when they conduct affairs of states and negotiate with agents of other states. They make full use of international law as a useful instrument for realizing the values and interests they pursue. They also use international law for settling various problems arising from those political and administrative processes. International law is also constantly referred to and utilized as a tool of communication by non-state actors such as NGOs, private companies, and other participants in global political, economic, and societal processes. It is also used as a source of normative ideas to ground their claims 
and as a means to realize their interests and values. When we evaluate international law, we must consider these actual roles and functions that international law has played and is playing in various contexts. Now I deal with the constructive power of law and the power to disseminate ideas on a global scale. When we consider the problem of law and power, we tend to think of them in opposite terms. Law as an ideational norm and power as an expression of reality. Realists tend to emphasize the significance of power regarding law merely as a tool of power or insignificant in global affairs. This view is accepted by ordinary citizens. Here the power means substantive power, that is military or economic power. Law is certainly a norm, but an idea is not just a theoretical existence. An idea constitutes power. It is embedded in people's way of thinking and exerts influence on it. Through legal ideas, we construe various ideas and phenomena and act according to such understanding. Law appears to the mind of people and invites them to act in a certain direction. Law as a normative idea thus has the power to induce people to realize the values and interests that law prescribes either directly or indirectly. Throughout the 20th century, people all over the world regarded international law as the law of international society which covers the entire globe. Humanity has managed a number of affairs on security, trade, finance, transportation, etc., on the shared assumption that international law is the law of global international society. Because of these <coughs> accumulated facts based on this assumption, international law has continued to define and influence the thoughts and behavior of people all over the world. It is still defining and influencing us today. Humans, whether they are members of private companies or governments, either in business or as citizens, are involved in trade, human rights, global environment, and other similar issues. In such cases, they unconsciously adopt concepts or frameworks of international law such as territories, self-defense, nationality, etc. Seen from the perspective of international law, it enters the minds of those people without their being aware of it and defines or influences their thoughts. Through such an unconscious process, it regulates behaviors of people and induces these behaviors in a certain direction. In this way, it helps to construct certain realities of the world. International law helps people, including those in conflicts with each other, to mutually understand the identity of various actors, to communicate with each other in a common language, and to share common understandings in a global society. Through these functions, institutions articulating the common values and interests of global society are constructed and reconstructed on a daily basis.
When these institutions do not function well, the existence of international law becomes more conspicuous. International law then functions to settle problems such as armed conflicts, massive violations of human rights, and trade wars. When these problems occur, not only those who are in charge of settling them, but also ordinary citizens, either consciously or unconsciously, understand these problems as problems. When they do so, they resort to a number of concepts and frameworks of international law and understand these affairs through these concepts and frameworks. The power of the idea of human rights in domestic and international political arenas is a typical example. The idea of human rights has exerted a strong influence in decreasing the normative power of the non-intervention principle in international law. It has compelled a number of states to change their policies. Now I'm dealing with international law as a modern Western construct. For any idea <coughs> to have power, it needs another power. This is the power to disseminate the idea and help it become widely shared and accepted. Even the best idea cannot have power if it lacks the linguistic, informational, educational, and economic means to be globally disseminated and shared. In the 20th century, it was the West-centric structures composed of leading Western experts and media institutions, as well as the predominant status of the English language that possessed such means of dissemination and propagation. If you are a famous columnist of the New York Times, for example, you have a good chance to have your ideas widely shares, shared in global society. But if you are an unknown student of international law in a small country, your idea will hardly be heard and thus realized even if it is a better idea for humanity than the one advocated by the famous columnist of the New York Times. In the process of formation of some norm on a global state scale, certain powers are at work in an implicit and unconscious manner. When we consider the problem of international law from the viewpoint of ideational power, we have to consider the problem of information, which is overwhelmingly Euro-America-centric. The world we see today is basically the world construed by CNN and the BBC or New York Times. Major notions and cognitive frameworks of international law that people use today are those constructed and construed by major Western international lawyers such as Oppenheim. Very few non-Western international lawyers have played a significant role in constructing and constructing major concepts and frameworks of international law. This fact raises a serious doubt as to the global legitimacy of these predominant concepts or frameworks. 
They may have technical or professional legitimacy because they are products of highly esteemed experts. However, even in terms of expertise, they have insufficient knowledge on legal and other aspects of non-Western civilizations which should have a bearing on the concepts or frameworks of international law. In terms of representative legitimacy, most traditional concepts of international law lack global legitimacy because they were not created and formulated in a manner representing humanity as a whole. More than 80% of the po world population was not represented in the process where predominant notions and frameworks of international law were created and formulated nor do they represent realities of power in the 21st century. Western nations have been predominant in their economic, military, and informational power since the 19th century, but it is unlikely that they can maintain such a preponderant status in the 21st century world. The West-centric notions and frameworks of international law do not necessarily respond to emerging realities of the multipolar world. Such a discrepancy between the actual power constellation and the predominant cognitive framework is dangerous because the discrepancy will easily lead to a misunderstanding of problems between major powers in the 21st century. In order to satisfy the requirements for representative global legitimacy and relevance to global power constellations of the 21st century, we must overcome excessive West-centrism in international law and global society. Now I'm dealing with in search of more legitimate perspectives in the global discursive space. I would like to conclude my lectures by inviting your attention to the changes that I myself have witnessed as an observer who has held this sense of multi-civilizational world since the 1970s. In 1981, I was invited to be a member of the panel on international law education at the 75th annual meeting of the American Society of International Law. At that time, I was shocked by the fact that major casebooks or course books of international law used in the U.S. included a huge number of domestic laws and jurisprudence of the U.S. Also, most of the excerpts of the writings adopted in these course books are overwhelmingly those by U.S. international lawyers. To me, they didn't appear to be course books of, for students of international law at all. Rather, they seemed like textbooks on U.S. domestic law. Well, we must admit that each country tends to have its own preferences for selecting writings and laws or jurisprudence for textbooks on international law. This is understandable, and to a certain extent justifiable because they are basically addressed to the readers of their own countries. However, even considering this common tendency, 
The course texts and casebooks used in the U.S. were too egocentric, even parochial. They paid excessive attention to their own laws, jurisprudence, and writings, ignoring foreign and international ones. They simply lacked a notion that the U.S. is one of many sovereign states, which constitutes a fundamental basis for any study of international law. In 1981, criticism of Eurocentrism was already visible and conspicuous in a number of disciplines such as anthropology, history, and sociology. Edward Said's Orientalism was extremely popular among U.S. and European intellectuals. Yet the situation of the U.S. international legal education was as I have just described. It is a matter, of course, that we cannot understand international law only by reading materials given by U.S. lawyers and institutions. It was thus in this paper of 1981 that I introduced the term intercivilizational for the first time into the discipline of international law. From the 1980s, the situation has changed in various ways. First, the influence of developing and socialist countries in terms of intellectual and ideational power declined. This tendency became even more conspicuous after the end of the Cold War. This is regrettable because it has contributed to the unipolarity of the world in terms of ideational power. Instead, ideational power of the Western Europeans was enhanced. In recent years, we can see a number of transatlantic dialogues in various fields, including that of international law. This is desirable <coughs> in that it can enrich perspectives by introducing non-U.S. perspectives to U.S. international lawyers and other influential people. However, it is not enough. We cannot enact and interpret international law by merely relying on transatlantic dialogues. As I emphasized again and again, we are already entering a multipolar world. This multipolar nature will be increased with the increase of substantive power of Asian nations including China and India, two candidates for superpowers in the century. A number of intellectuals have been talking about these problems. Yet, we are not sufficiently aware of the implications of this radical change. Why? Because despite the changes in such substantive powers, the information, now intellectual, and ideational power is still overwhelmingly North Atlantic-centric. Because of this shared cognitive frame framework, we cannot recognize the meaning and implications of this critical change of the actual world. I cannot be very optimistic about the overall situation. However, we might be able to see some positive signs of gradual change in the field of international legal studies. 
At the inaugural meeting of the European Society of International Law, Professor Koskenimi gave a paper inviting attention to the ideological function of European international lawyer in justifying the imperialistic policies of the Western great powers. Although this paper was severely criticized by Professor Pierre-Marie Dupuis, a commentator, the very fact that such a paper was presented as a keynote paper at the inaugural meeting of the European Society of International Law is important. In April 2007, the Asian Society of International Law was established. It is the American Society of International Law that has been the most active academic society of international law. It has produced a number of important academic and practical papers, attracted many people, and given opportunities to international lawyers all over the world. Yet, in order to enrich the study and overall understanding of international law, we need plural active academic societies that can compete with each other. The very fact that the European Society of International Law and Asian Society of International Law were born at the beginning of this century may be symbolic. It is symbolic that international legal studies based on multipolarity and multi-civilizationality have just begun. When I argued the need for an intercivilizational perspective starting in 1981 and throughout in the 20th throughout the 20th century it was basically a normative or moralistic argument i argued that such a perspective is needed from the viewpoint of global justice voices of the weaker peripheral and powerless must be heard the claim for the transcivilizational perspective still retains this important feature. In the 21st century, however, it is no longer a merely moralistic or normative argument. It is also a realistic argument based on the changing realities of power constellation in global society. Thank you very much for your attention.